1: Well, Tom, that was
2: that was fantastic. Right in there. No, no pretense, no nothing. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: So if you wouldn't mind introducing
1: our guest for tonight. Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we are welcoming Dr. Alexander Wally. Alexander Wally, MD, is professor of medicine at Boston University, Chobanian, and... Avedesian School of Medicine, primary care physician and addiction specialist at Boston Medical Center, focused on the medical complications of substance use, specifically HIV and overdose. He has developed an inpatient addiction consult service and low barrier walk-in addiction clinic. Dr. Wally is a founding member of the Graken Addiction Medicine Fellowship and the president-elect of the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. He serves as the medical director for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's Bureau of Substance Addiction Services and the Overdose Prevention Program, which has trained and equipped over 100,000 people in Massachusetts communities with naloxone rescue kits, including people at risk for overdose and their social networks. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show.
0: Tom, Dr. Joe, uh, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it.
1: Uh, So have I. It's, It's so great to reconnect
2: with you. Just, you know, full disclosure, folks. Uh, Alex Wall and I go back many, many years when Castle was still around and you were just, you know, we were just dealing with the opioid crisis and weren't you involved in, like, getting a state prescription for Narcan for, like, anybody could, like, get it? I mean, what what was, remember (laughs) remember that?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, Yeah, so naloxone, also uh, called by the, um, uh, by the, a uh, brand name Narcan there's also oh. one called Luxado, um is the antidote to an opioid overdose and it's one of the one of the tools that we have to address um the continually increasing opioid overdoses um it's really sad how many people we lose every year um but there's more people that are saved every year um, by their loved ones, by themselves, and and by the antidote, um, naloxone. So Massachusetts has been an early adopter of the public health intervention. Um, it's been distributed through um, community-based programs, really um, underground since the late nine, 1990s by harm reduction programs, um, which really are made up of people who use drugs themselves. Um, but then in, in 2007, some forward-looking state leaders started to fund naloxone distribution in the community. And I had the fortune of being the medical director um, and the medical license behind that community distribution. It was expanded to to make naloxone available at every pharmacy in Massachusetts since 2017. um, Really, uh, what was um, behind the counter um, and so anyone can go to any pharmacy in Massachusetts and ask the pharmacist for naloxone rescue kit. They will first ask you if you want to bill your insurance. Um, and if you do, then you get the kit for your copay. Um, or if you want to pay out of pocket, you can pay out of pocket. Um, or you can go to one of the many community programs now that distribute it for free. So um, thanks for allowing me to plug that, Tom, because um, uh, it's an important public health intervention um, that we have in Massachusetts. It's really been um, uh, other states have followed basically. Um, so right. it's a bright spot in a dark landscape of the of what we're dealing with with overdoses, but um, something I have jump at the chance to get the word out. So thank you.
2: No, absolutely. and, and you know it, it's 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 incredible what you've done. How many lives you have saved and and naloxone, the other part that's interesting—it's the only medicine that I prescribe that I expect to be diverted to somebody else, other than who I prescribe it to. Isn't that remarkable?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and you know, I, I will say, so I'm an addiction treatment provider, as as you are, and um, I offer it to my my patients who are coming in for treatment. And oftentimes, the first response is, "Well, doc, I'm trying not to use." Why are you giving me this? Um, and so that conversation goes in two directions. So first of all, I say, look, I'm really glad that your plan A is to be a- abstinent, uh, to not use for uh, opioids again. Um, but I got to tell you that um, I'm not talking about you specifically, but in general, this is a relapsing, remitting condition. And, um, I want, when I ask you what your plan is, I want you to have a plan, um, if you use again. And so why don't you tell me what your plan is? And, um, so then that opens up the discussion. A lot of times people say my plan is, well, I'm going to call a friend. That's a great plan. Right. Um, but then I say, well, that's a good plan. Plan A is not to use plan B is to call somebody. Well, what's your plan C? What are you going to do? What is your plan if you're going to use? And, um, and so, you know, Hopefully, hopefully what it is is that they're going to have somebody there with them, that that person is going to have naloxone and be prepared in the case that they need to use it and also be able to pick up the phone and and call for help. Um, And so that's important part of the discussion. The other part of the discussion is like, look, actually, I'm giving you this naloxone because, yeah, maybe somebody will be able to help you out with it, but more likely you're going to be able to use it to help somebody else out. Which I think is what you were referring to. Like, we actually, this is um, this is something we can prescribe to people that where they can save other people's lives, and um, that's extremely empowering for folks. Um, So, um, you know, it's really it's really the people who use drugs themselves and um, their loved ones, their family, their social networks who have done a lot of the rescue, all the rescuing, really. I mean, along with our first responders, of course, but. But really, the, the the lion's share of the overdoses that have been uh, rescued have, have really been at the hands of people who, um, you know, who are in the networks of people who use drugs. So um, that's yeah, how that, that be out.
1: Is sure, that Tom. already or should it be more of a protocol similar to how, you know, buildings need to have fire extinguishers or airplanes and passenger vessels need to have a first aid kit? I can see this becoming common practice to have stored Narcan ready.
0: Yeah. Well, so it is a, it is required in Massachusetts pharmacies for them to stock it and to make it available for people that ask for it. Um, I I will say for those prescribers out there, there's still a role for you to prescribe it. Um, having your prescribers endorsement, I think really makes a difference, but you don't need a prescription. And then probably in the fall, the FDA is approved over the counter naloxone. So pretty soon we're going to see, uh, where you don't even need to ask the pharmacist. You can just pull it off the shelf and, and, um, And now the big question there is how much is it going to cost and is that going to be um, doable for people? But um, so, yeah, so um, police officers in uh, most places in Massachusetts now are carrying it um, as there's a whole movement around what they call Nalox boxes, which are essentially the same ideas in AED posting, um, you know, in the community, at places, public spaces. Um, That's not mandated, but there's increasing... um, there's cre- increasing interest of putting those in places where there are so-called overdose hotspots. Um, so uh, that's the general uh, direction that this is moving. It started out really very much as a countercultural harm reduction um, intervention that people who use drugs came up with themselves. Um, it was embraced eventually by the public health world, by the medical world, and now it's really mainstream. It's 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 central. To the national and the state um, plans to address the overdose, um, uh, the increasing overdoses that we're seeing.
2: Yeah, did I hear correctly? Are you uh, uh, about to be the president of of ASAM?
0: Not well. ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, a very important providers um, group. No, I'm not going to be the president of ASAM. AAM, which is ACAM. what. What you used to know as ABAM, so it's now okay. evolved into ACAM, and that is the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. And really, we are an organization that is focused, it's an, uh, a nonprofit, non commercial organization. We really are focused on promoting and supporting addiction medicine fellowships. So, physicians um, who are interested in specializing in addiction medicine. We um, are really their voice and support them. And not at the exclusion of other disciplines, by the way. We very much recognize that to address substance use, um, we, need, uh, we need the whole village. Um, but we, we need to train physicians to, to really learn how to take care and be leaders in taking care of, um, of people who, who struggle with substance use. So I'm very proud of ACAM. Um anybody's interested, they can check it out at ACAMACAAM.org. Org.
2: Well, congratulations. And, and they could not have a better leader. I mean, we've had great leaders in the past, but having you there is, is, is inspirational. I'm delighted. We were talking um, about something called harm reduction. Some people may not really understand what that is. Can you give us a sort of thumbnail of it?
0: Well, sure. So um, in the world of substance use, it it's actually a has historically been a very politicized term. And um, for a long time in the United States, when it comes to public health and the government and drug policy, it was kind of a dirty word. Like, um, so um, people who were writing grants, say for example, if they mentioned harm reduction in the grants, they wouldn't be funded. And it wasn't actually um, uh, uh, it wasn't um, uh, mentioned in 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 public health policy. That's all changed in the last couple years, by the way, and. Harm reduction is actually one of the pillars now of the federal strategy to address uh, substance use. And I think of it as a close companion with treatment. So treatment is for people who are ready for treatment, who are interested in treatment. And we have, we're lucky in, in substances, particularly opioids, we have really effective treatments. Um, and uh, But many all of them hinge sort of on people's engagement and their access, et cetera there are going to be people who either don't have access to treatment or they're not interested or, or ready or wanting treatment. And for in both of those cases, we need to do as much as we can to help people um, live their best lives. And that starts with living their lives, right? So naloxone, the antidote to an overdose, is specifically for people who are still using, um, and the idea is to keep them alive. And that alone, full stop, is enough in my book. Um, and, um, I, I think it's really important and, uh, to recognize the inherent value of every individual, regardless of, um, you know, the behaviors that they, uh, choose or, um, and, or, 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 or what they do to cope with the things that they've confronted in their lives or their genetic load. Um, these are things that drive substance use, right? So people who've been hurt, Um, oftentimes cope with that pain, whether it's psychological or physical by um, by medicating themselves. Um, People have a genetic drive uh, for uh, addiction um, at, you know, distributed differently in our society. Um, And so um, so it's it's quite natural and normal for hundreds thousands of years for, for people to reach for a substance to make them feel good or to make them feel better. Um, and so um, I don't think we should dehumanize people for that. And we have a long history of, frankly, doing that with the war on drugs and, and the criminalization of people, not just drugs, but of people who use drugs. So harm reduction is very much a, a set of concrete strategies like naloxone distribution, like syringe service programs, um, and like um, a low barrier uh, access to health care, meaning not mandating abstinence um before uh, treating people with the treatments that work and the treatments that they deserve. Um, so those are some of the concrete things we think of when we think about harm reduction, but harm reduction is also an approach to um, to other human beings to um, uh, some of the common um, mantras in harm reduction would be um, nothing about us without us. So like engaging the people that we're trying to care for in meaningful um, and empowered, um, dialogue around what they want their care to be like and how we can help them. Um, and another mantra is any positive change, which seems like it might overlap with some of the Dr. Joe approach, um, uh, of small changes, big effects. Um, and so any positive change is definitely a central, uh, tenet in harm reduction, um, and so we want to claim every small, any positive change as a victory um, and, um, and uh, continue to try to support those going forward.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's important because there's been such a stigma and, uh, about mental health, but certainly substance use. And, I, and that's why I wanted to point out earlier, you, you mentioned that working with folks who have this condition, I was so grateful that you used the word condition and not the word disorder. Because as soon as we use the word disorder, we separate people into these groups. This group is okay. Not sure I can trust that other group. Um, we created, uh, without meaning to, but we contributed at least to this isolation and stigmatization.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, not just a disorder, but a disease, right? And um, there's what we call the disease model of addiction, which I think is really the primary um primary um view or frame that uh, medical students are taught in medical school now that i there's a lot of positive aspects i think to framing it as a d- disease or disorder namely that it makes it science based i think um and the goal there i think Joe was to destigmatize it right to sort of say that it's not a moral failing it's a disorder or a disease right And really what I learned from from you and one of my colleagues, mentees, former fellows, um, and um, uh, now peer mentor, Sarah Bagley, who's interested in this um, young adult adolescent population, is if we tell somebody who's 21, 22 years old that they have a disorder or they have a chronic disease, that is extremely stigmatizing, right? Um, And it's really hard for them to face. And and, and actually, what what substance use or addiction also is, is a developmental condition or a developmental disorder. It, It clusters in certain age groups at certain times when the brain is changing. And those ages are in the adolescent through the young adult years. That's when people are more naturally at risk because that's part of their brain development. So it's a it's a developmental condition or or you could call it a disorder. But when you call it a developmental disorder, people do most people grow out of it. Actually, Um, that's the developmental part. There's also a learning piece to it. Like people um, don't learn the the same thing. There's a problem with their learning where there's negative consequences by definition to somebody who has an addiction they're not learning from their negative consequences. They're continuing to use in a compulsive way despite their negative consequences. So that's a there's a there's a problem, we would say, in their in their learning. Um there's there's this fourth way I've been thinking about it. So all those ways, I think, are not perfect, but in my view, they're helpful. But it depends on the audience and and we need to qualify them because, as you said, with the disorder disease, it can be very off putting and stigmatizing people. Which is actually that actually can drive more substance use, right. um, and so that can be problematic. It being just a learning disorder, I think you know, you know it's it's not that simple. Um, and then this issue about being it developmental. Well, yes, it is developmental, but it's not just developmental. This this fourth thing i i heard I heard from Maya Salovitz, who's this uh, who's a writer, who's a person with lived experience, um, published some books. One called "Undoing Drugs." And she described it as this issue um, where people can love a substance like they would love a person. And so it's a misplacing of love. And it, it that hinges on this definition of love, where love to really love somebody is, yes, to care for them, to honor them, to respect them, but also to do things for them that you wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and I can think of examples um, in my own, um, marriage, which is really, um, kind of where I, you know, where I do things for my wife that I would not do for myself or for other people. And I know she does the same thing for me. Um, and, but then if I were to do that for a drug, right, like I would do things that I wouldn't otherwise do that are actually maybe harmful to me that, you know, that sort of, and so, um, and you know, the, the you, you often talk about oxytocin and the role of that, right? And, you know, I think it's sort of underappreciated. So anyway, I wanted to pose that to you just to see you maybe have been down this road and thought it through and have it all figured out. But that's one of the things I've been thinking about recently.
2: Yeah, it it, it, it is absolutely part of it because the way we sort of understand drugs and alcohol is they force the release of this ancient, ancient chemical called dopamine, um, and, and again, this is really sort of simplifying the model, but dopamine really is a very selfish chemical. It's an important chemical uh, in our body. It's used for all sorts of things, you know, but but it's, it's selfish. It's really about dopamine. So when we experience this dopamine pleasure, we get this positive reinforcement. You know, the way I like to say it, Tom's heard it so many times, but does the name Pavlov ring a bell? Right, so... It's it's the Pavlovian positive behavioral reinforcement. You get this rush from dopamine and your brain remembers that in the limbic system, the ancient limbic system. But we know that dopamine interferes with another neurohormone, oxytocin, not oxycontin, oxytocin, which is the neurohormone of trust. It interferes with it. So one of the things that we teach is you can get high, but the price you pay is trust you just decide which pleasure is more important to you. So yes, I think that, that there are folks who absolutely love this dopamine rush, but on some level, they are realizing the price they pay for it, or all the people around them, all the people who now don't trust them, which then unfortunately makes them feel less valuable with less pleasure And dopamine says,
1: what are you waiting for? I know what you can do. It's one area that we're still so comfortable stigmatizing people. Like, Because there's Mm -hmm. plenty of conditions and diseases that can be the result of lifestyle choices that we don't berate people over, like lung cancer. Friends and family will smoke and they'll get lung cancer. We see it coming, but we don't treat them as less than once they get lung cancer. We don't abandon them. Obesity. There are plenty of problems that come with that, but we don't treat people. We're not supposed to. I mean, it's rude to treat people as less than for any health problems, but for some reason, when it comes to addiction, it's cut them loose. They're not worth it. And,
2: and, Alex,
0: well,
2: I have a theory about that, but what what's your take on that? Tom is right. I mean, we we absolutely turn our back on the people who need us the most.
0: Yeah, and you know, everyone is really is really touched. You know, so it's it's not it really hits all all segments and sectors of society. I I will say, um, like a lot of health conditions, um, uh, there is a disproportionate impact on um, on people who are um, who are outside the mainstream. You know, whether it's because of poverty or um, or because of racism or because of other discrimination. So, um, you know, I, I've had the opportunity um, this year, I've been on a sabbatical where I haven't been seeing patients for the year, been continuing some of the research, which we'll talk about, but, um, but I've been able to visit other places where they don't have the same history of stigmatizing substance use mm. or substance use treatment for that matter. And that is a first step. So, and and really, it's one way it's manifested is by criminalization. So, the there's no higher form of stigma than criminalizing something, right? That is that is state sanctioned stigmatization. Um, and there are countries that don't that don't criminalize drug use. Um, they criminalize other crimes like property crimes and right. So, it doesn't mean there's a free for all in the society. But when you use a substance you're hurting yourself more than you're hurting anybody else. Now it does tear families apart. It can, particularly the addiction, the, the the behaviors that follow, but the actual using of the substance doesn't actually hurt anyone except if you're drunk driving and you know, like that's, that's still, sh- that's a crime, right? If you're, if you drive and you kill somebody, then I think largely that's accepted uh, as a crime. So, um, but even in the other countries that I've been to, which include Portugal and Uruguay and um in Scotland, where they have more progressive drug policies, um, there still is an outcast group in society, and those people who are outcasts, who are marginalized, who are discriminated against for other reasons, they often are going to seek solace and respite in in using substances, and so, um, and then, and then the stigmatization, right? There, that's that's part of my response. Is that's stigmatizing people for other reasons can feed into substance use. And a lot of it gets to sort of how their people are externally and internally valued. Right. And, and the, the using the substance, they're trying to alter their consciousness, right. Because they don't like the way they feel or, or the, or the substance really make them feel good, you know, in, at least in the beginning. So, um, so anyway, I don't, I don't have a simple cure for stigma. I know that a good place to start is decriminalization um, in not punching down. That's essentially what, what we do when we criminalize drugs is we're trying to hurt people who are already hurting. Um, and we have we have we know better. We have better things to offer people. Right. Well, that's what and the war on
1: drugs was all about from the beginning.
0: Absolutely. and And that's and it's worth it like the time it takes to spend to show people respect and respect uh, support and dignity and provide them with evidence-based treatments that we know that work that pays off um and so um anyway i could go on and on about how um we you know don't make the things we know work readily available to people um which is another thing that i is very clear as i've looked at other countries we do we we and a lot of the treatments that we have that are effective actually were developed in the United States, um, but, but we don't make them accessible on a population level the way they do in other countries, countries that are poor and have less resources than we do. So but that's also the truth in a lot of health cares. It's not, that's not unique to substance use, but it's still the same story there.
2: And, and so important to identify so that we can do something about it. You
0: know, so, so tell us, tell us a bit about the research you've been doing. Um, well, so uh, I've m- my research is really focused on overdose uh, prevention. And I talked already about naloxone, and we've studied the impacts of distributing naloxone in the community. And so, um, done a number of projects to show kind of how it works, how do you communicate pe- to, with people around overdose, and what the community level impact is. And um, so, we've done uh, some. Uh, quasi-experimental um, design studies that really show uh, a reduction in overdose death when you distribute naloxone at the community level. Um, we the most more recent line of research that I've um, really been um, focusing on is what's called post-overdose outreach. So the biggest risk factor for an overdose a fatal overdose is a previous non-fatal overdose. This is very analogous to depression, right? So when or, I'm sorry, suicide. So when somebody attempts suicide, um, that actually, um, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that if somebody has attempted suicide multiple times, that maybe, you know, there's somebody that's we're not shouldn't be as worried about, right? Because it doesn't it's crying wolf. But in reality, those are the very people who end up actually completing a suicide attempt or dying by suicide. And um so we need to bring that same lens and so when somebody has had a suicide attempt we need to muster resources towards them and really support them um in getting getting treatment and 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 really getting connected really like to have their depression addressed. Well the, I think the same is true for somebody who's had a non-fatal overdose. Um and so I'm very interested in the relationship between non-fatal overdose and, and, and fatal overdose because, um, you know, if somebody on their own raises their hand and says, I want treatment, they now declared themselves. We, they're identified, right? The person who goes to a harm reduction agency, they've said to, like, I care enough about myself that if I'm going to use, I want to use more safely, right? But the non-fatal overdose, that's usually not somebody raising their hand and saying, I need help or I want help it's somebody who someone else has called for help, right? And they've been taken to the emergency department. And oftentimes when they get taken to the emergency department, they have a difficult experience there. They're released from the emergency department and they're not interested in treatment. And in fact, they oftentimes are released in withdrawal. So there's efforts to make treatment available at the emergency department, but still the mindset oftentimes right after you've been rescued from an overdose, isn't to like jump right into treatment, right? It's really to, to, to get away from the health system. And so this question of how do we engage this population of people who isn't asking for help, who may not be engaging in harm reduction, but but it's identified by having a non-fatal overdose is a very tricky relationship and engagement problem. They're a high risk on a, uh, from a public health perspective, but we don't know exactly how to engage them. Well, organically in Massachusetts, community by community over the last five years, many municipalities have forged these public health, public safety partnerships that are doing proactive outreach to these folks. And this is not evidence-based. It's really driven by what else can we do? You know, what else can we do about this? It's really trying to respond to the crisis. And um, it's a valiant effort. And actually we have shown, we just published a study in JAMA Psychiatry in March, March 15th, which showed that the Implementation of these programs is associated with a a small but a, a significant reduction in overdose deaths. So that's good news. Um, it's not a you know randomized controlled trial. It's a, 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 a quasi experimental design, but it's promising evidence that these actually may be effective. But how they're implemented varies widely from community to community. Okay, and one of the key issues that we think a lot about is What is the approach when you, how do you approach people and what do you, what do you approach them with? And some of the programs initially start off with like, we just need to come to people's homes and offer them treatment. And I think personally, and we have some evidence to start shows that you need a much more nuanced view. You need to really meet people where they are at, which is a a key harm reduction term, but also an important, I think, wise counseling term, Um, we need to meet people at where they're at and offer them what they need at the time, their concrete needs, and include both harm reduction and treatment resources. So anyway, I could go on and on, but that's a that's one of the research areas that I'm really interested in. Um, and it's a difficult problem. It's not as it's not as simple as just making naloxone available as widely as possible. That to me, that's much more simple. Simple, but. Um, although there's complications there but this is really like because when you go and knock on somebody's door you could to be turning them off in some neighborhoods maybe more than others depending on who is knocking on that door it gets into issues around cultural responsiveness turns out half the time when these outreaches cur- uh, occur they're reaching the family with or without the overdose survivor so how do you how do you deal with the family or how do you support the family because a lot of times these families either maybe they don't know what's happened or where they're, um, you know, they're in a lot of pain. Um, And uh, so we need to offer them support when we engage with them.
2: Yeah. It's, it's uh, such a dilemma to, to knock on someone's door, all we're offering is help. And yet, I think we get sort of lumped in with the stigma, that somehow we are going to be the ones judging these people as less than and broken. And that's absolutely, I mean, I know you and, and certainly people know that that is not my approach at all. We're just trying to remind people of their value. And I think a lot of people have, have felt dismissed with no happiness, and that's where dopamine comes in. You know, That's where it's, it's, got, it's
0: got its allure. I'll just tell you, though, that there are people who are very skilled at this, and I think these skills can be taught you know, about how to really engage people on their own terms to meet them where they're at without judgment, you know, just love, no judgment, uh, or, or, you know, respect. respect. Yes, with respect. Respect. Um, And, um, you know, like, uh, and doing that in the community is, is different. It's a different, you know, it's some of the same principles, but it's a different skill than, than the approach I try to use in my office, right? Like, I, Um, the skills are are sort of the same idea like I tried to to really um listen and understand where the person's coming from what they're looking for how I can meet them where they're at I have an agenda and I try to make that explicit but but uh but really um uh secondary to the to the person I'm trying to help right because um and and almost always the agendas are going to overlap in some areas and that's where you start you know that's um so, but that's in a healthcare setting, which is, you know, designed for a particular purpose. When, when we're trying to go engage people in their communities on their own terms, it's a different, it's a different approach, which takes uh, you know, special skills.
2: It can, it can, but it is about respect and value and, and meeting people where they're at. And we were talking off air a little bit about whether there was an increase in, in fatal and lethal overdoses during COVID and Alex, you had some thoughts about that.
0: Sure. So I, I think, like a lot of health issues, there was um, uh, a reduction in access to treatment and to some degree harm reduction services. Although I have to say I am extremely proud of the workforce in Massachusetts, that both the treatment and the harm reduction workforce, they were considered essential. Workers and essential services, which is not was not true in other states necessarily, and they stayed out there and they put their own lives uh, at risk to uh, continue the services. However, they had to do it under different terms. So even there have been a number of uh, uh, residential treatment programs that have closed down while access to medications like buprenorphine and methadone have expanded. Um, but, the, you know, you had to de-densify the residential units, which just meant there were less treatment slots. And then, um, you know, the just the, we don't pay people enough um, in order to staff these programs. And this is true throughout a lot of healthcare. care. Um, and we still have an ongoing workforce shortage. So really, if anybody's looking for a, a rewarding, um, uh, uh, soul-filling um, career, I encourage you to really think about getting in to um, – into uh, helping people with substance uses, it, it it's uh, as bad as it is. Every day, I get to hear somebody who has um, made substantial progress, uh, small changes with big effects yeah, in their absolutely. lives, yeah. and to bear witness to that, to have any role in that is just really, really rewarding work. The other part I need to mention during COVID is is the racial inequities. Um, and ethnic inequities that were felt certainly in Massachusetts. So there were surges in overdose deaths among um, uh, Black people in Massachusetts, um, Latinx, Latino, Hispanic people, and and our Native population or our Indigenous population, which oftentimes, um, uh, you know, isn't hasn't gotten the attention it really deserves. Uh, uh, in um, in when we think about substance use. Um, and, uh, and so it's a really, uh, those are important areas and, and, and we need to, we need to really focus our, our resources and our care, uh, on, the, on those, um, populations so that they can get, uh, the, the care that they deserve. Yeah. And, and
2: for those of you who are listening, who may
0: be in recovery yourself, who have gone through this,
2: your lived experience is invaluable and can help so many. One of my phrases Contribute to society to help with your sobriety. Because I mean, when you are helping others, um, you're increasing not only their value, but yours. And that that can really, that can increase oxytocin. We know that oxytocin now can break the loop of addiction. We've known that since 2011. Um, you know, great paper came out and, and it's, we can still do it. We can still do it. We have to. This, you know, COVID is yeah, not an immunization against uh, against substance use.
0: It certainly wasn't. We need people, you know, um, and uh, uh, so. Yeah. How did you get into this work, Alex? Well, um, well I didn't have any uh, physicians in my family. Um, I thought I I went, uh, but I have two sons in college now and. Um I am remembering so I'm thinking about what my my he- mindset was when I was in college trying to think about what I wanted to do. I didn't didn't actually do any um, science courses in college. I I had a, t- a literature teacher who was a physician, a, uh, actually a child psychiatrist, Robert Coles, and he um, wow. talked about um his medical training and his experience as a psychiatrist and, um, during difficult times during the 60s. And um, that inspired me to think about going into medicine. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that sort of got me curious about it. And then I was in uh, in medical school in the mid-90s in, in Baltimore, where um, the HIV, we had, actually my first year of medical school, there was a treatment for the first time for HIV that actually could keep it from being a terminal illness to making a chronic disease. And um, so that was transformative. But then I spent the next four years taking care of people in the hospital who were still dying from HIV. And and many, most of them were using substances and they did not get access because of stigma and other reasons. And so um, the tremendous progress we made during on HIV has really been an inspiration for me in thinking about how we can care for people who use substances, um, it's not just about the medicines. The medicines are very important, but it's not just about the medicines. It's about creating a system of care that really is accessible and centers their experience um, and addresses their other issues, you know, that come along with the with the condition. So that's that's what got me started. Yeah,
2: it's true. I mean, we call it medication-assisted treatment. The medication is to assist; it is not the centerpiece. Of the treatment. It is it is the community, it is the people around the person. Medication is important, but it's just a small change in the biological domain.
0: I, I will say that I just I do have one concern. I'm a little bit of a wordsmith about medication-assisted treatment. It's not my favorite phrase because it can be used to uh make a medication last argument, which is that. You don't deserve medication until you're willing to Mm. do counseling. And that is a fatal, literally a fatal error that we have made in our profession. And we now need to offer people whatever works whenever they're ready. And so that can mean medication first. Um, And that doesn't mean there's no value to counseling. Of course, there's value to counseling. But there's some people who just can't sit and talk, wow. you know, uh, then they need to have their withdrawal treated first, you yeah. know? Um, and so, so anyway, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the terms, but that's, um, I, m- medication alone is very helpful to some people. It's probably not the answer long-term. It's a good place to start. Um, you know, and, in and with a lot of substances, we don't have any medication, right? So we, you know, we need to rely on, we need to rely on other things, which work. I mean, counseling works, also, right? Yeah. But people have to sit for it.
2: Um, no, I agree. I mean, I'm not saying that that we withhold medicine until you're ready to do that, but but I want people to know that that it's it's more than just medication. There's there's a whole bunch of things that we'll go into because because you're not alone in this. You now, with, with that in mind, the I am approach. Just to come back to it, we we're all doing the best we can, influenced by these four domains of your home, your social domain, the biological domain, and the I see the way I see myself, the way other people see me. Because these domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. When we add a medicine, we we're making a small change in a biological domain. Based on what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our
0: listeners? It's going to be a language thing, which maybe you have already covered, but something called person first language which doesn't only apply to addiction but i think it's one of the places where we can really um apply it and 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 the, the the clearest example is the term addict right so i don't use that term um i have i don't judge people who describe themselves that way that's for them to describe themselves but at, as I don't describe other people that way. I describe them as people first, so people who use substances, or people who inject drugs, or a person who has HIV infection. Um, a person with diabetes, so, or a person with schizophrenia. So I this I, I also don't use the term diabetic or schizophrenic, right? It's person first language. And that's a small change that. Uh, I don't know if you ever had John Kelly on the show, but he has shown, he's from Mass General, from the Recovery Research Institute. Um, he's we have shown, had him on the show. Yes, okay. we have had John he's on He's already show. talked about that. But yeah. that, that terminology makes a big difference in how we treat people, actually physically treat people. So that's nice. a small change that can have a big effect.
2: I think that's a powerful one. Very important. Words really do matter, folks. Words matter. The second truth about the I am, everyone has one. And everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through their IC domain, which has an effect on their biological domain because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. So what this means is you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence
0: you want to be. Dr. Alexander Wally,
2: what kind of influence do you want to be?
0: Well, so I like to... Set an example. I like to be honest with myself and so try to be honest with other people about what I don't know, um, which is a lot. And so um, but I think talking and um, acknowledging what we don't know is really, really important uh, influence on others. And so when I have seen people um, who I respect talk about what they don't know, I get curious, I get interested, and I think it's opening a door to a discussion, curiosity, and discovery.
2: Yeah. And we need that because we have, for so long, just sort of locked people into one position. You know, you're an addict, you know. And one of the early phrases I had when I was doing drugs free theater and Tassel the was, you know, you can hate the addiction, but not the person i mean you know it's it's not just who they are this has been an incredible discussion alex thank you so much being on the show if if people want to read your work or or know where you're at i mean i know you're on sabbatical but
0: how how do people find work that alex wally does um wow i don't know joe um uh, you can certainly find me. Um, uh, you, I don't have my own personal web page but you can certainly search me, Boston University, and you'll get a whole page on my uh, clinical work and my research and um, all the things that we've, um, you know, published and, and are working on. So,
2: Thank you so much for all the people and for all the lives you saved. Appreciate Alex. it, Alex. That's Thank generous. you.
0: Thank you, Joe. We'll Thank see you all, all next, next week. Time. Bye, okay. folks. Bye.